Good morning, church. <laughs> yes. That's, that's where we're headed, church. This is just a vision sermon. No. The, <laughs> no, we can't afford it. Um, this, is, this is what we saw is what church should not be. I hope that was made clear. That is not... It's getting easier and easier to get there, but I thought that was a spot-on representation of what not to be. And hopefully that ties in with our message this morning. Uh, Good morning for those that don't know. I'm Pastor Sean, and uh, Pastor Steve has been going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, he he stated early on that he's kind of doing just an aerial view of, of the book of Ephesians and things that we can draw out. And then the next couple weeks, so this week with me and next week with Jim, we're going to be able to dive into a couple of those concepts that we uh, have learned so far a little deeper. And the the one we're talking about today is belonging to the body. Now, as we saw how easy it is with technology today, that is not what belonging to the body looks like, okay? And uh, just to give a a few thoughts, uh, opening thoughts on the book of Ephesians, there's there's an opening, you know, let's pray first. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to get together. We thank you for the opportunity to serve our families by by, uh, raising up and teaching children this morning. And thank you for those that are part of that, Lord. And we ask that this morning you would allow us to hone in and focus, that we would listen up, that, that we would have our ears opened by your spirit to the word that you have for us this morning and give us the Ability, but more importantly, the willingness to carry it out, whatever it is, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Oh, that's better. Okay. So when we look at the book of Ephesians, we, we, we need to understand that there, there are basically two categories that this letter is split up into. Okay. Um, the first three chapters communicate uh, a foundational uh, instruction or theological explanation that, that Paul just goes hard on. Like there's, there's not a sentence that goes by in the first couple of chapters where it's not just teaching doctrine, theology, the foundations of which we stand on for our entire faith. Now this isn't to say that the whole book doesn't have truths to speak, but the majority of them we find uh, in the first couple of chapters. Uh, and we see it throughout in, in chapter 1. He talks about uh, in Christ we have redemption. We have forgiveness of our sins. In him we have received also an inheritance. So if it isn't enough to be saved, now not going to hell, but now going to heaven, saved from ourselves and our sins. And since we couldn't pull ourselves up, he pulled us up in case that wasn't enough. We get gifts. We have an inheritance. We have more to come. In verse 13, he writes that in him we were also then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If it wasn't enough to be saved from hell to heaven, if it wasn't enough to have an inheritance, now we get sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is God in us. In chapter 2, he he says, but God then made us alive, which means before we were dead, and now we are alive, and he has raised us up. As Christ is raised from the dead, we have been raised from the dead. That Christ is our peace who made us Both groups, one, the Jews and the Gentiles, those that were born into this life and those who were not born into this life, now everyone has access to the life with God. Keeps going in chapters 2, that we are no longer foreigners and strangers to the one true God. And we are built together for God's dwelling in this spirit. That Gentiles, those that are not Jewish, 
are now co-heirs and members of the same body as those who were born into God's family. And these are the truths that, that are, that are uh, saturating the first half of this book. But then in beginning with chapter 4, Paul shifts the main agenda from instruction to application. And the, the idea, just looking at it, if in fact that is the case, that the first half is all the teaching and instruction and just stuff we should believe that unifies us, like, this is your starting point. All of these things need to be true. That understanding those should lead to what happens in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Uh, it's put uh, one way in a commentary that in the remaining chapters, so 4, 5, and 6, Paul pours his efforts into describing how the church purchased by Christ's sacrifice must function in order to fulfill its mission. So that means that there is a point to that, that there's a reason why Paul splits it up and, and puts everything uh, thought-heavy or truth-heavy on one side and then puts the application on the un- other side, and the reason is because there is a purpose that we are to fulfill. Okay. Now the purpose we can find in Ephesians chapter 3, which is just an overall blanket for this entire talk, for, for what we're talking about in Ephesians in terms of the church and how to live together with the church. And we go there and it reads, This is so. So all of these truths in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are, that are firmly planted there, because of these truths, they, these truths are real, so God's multifaceted wisdom. I love that, the way it puts there. Multifaceted. So it's just... It goes on and on and on. So that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So there's a purpose that we are to fulfill. And the purpose is so that God's multifaceted wisdom, the reason why all these things are here and the reason why they're true and they're not just in the Bible for you to put on your shelf, the reason why we are to know these things is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church. He could have chosen anything, by the way. He could have chosen a a billboard and it would have worked. He could have chosen the internet. He could have chosen Jesus. But the avenue, the vehicle to which the whole world, everything is supposed to know God's reality is through his church. Now, let's not get hung up. I want to just, this is a quick Hopefully quick. I have a rabbit trail. Uh, this, the, this last bit of the line, the rulers and authorities in the heavens is a little odd because it's not heaven. It's heavens. So we're going to do a quick look at, at why that is. If that's a stumbling block for any of you, it should not be. Uh, we know that, that Paul actually, this isn't the first time Paul talks in this way that talks about more than one heaven. And I don't know about you, but there was a time where I, was, for the first time, heard of more than one heaven, and I thought that I was robbed. Like, why, why, have I, why has no one talked about this before? And knowing right here, Paul mentions it back in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Now, just by reading this, it's like, okay, he has a friend that's a nut. No, no, if further study into this is actually, Paul's actually talking about himself, talking about his testimony 14 years ago. So he says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But God knows. 
I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. Now just pause. This is hilarious. It's okay to, to laugh at Scripture sometimes in the appropriate context. Paul is saying, have you, ever, have you ever had such a story to tell and you just didn't know how to tell it? I, I, this, this happened. I don't know how. I don't say anything, but it happened. Like he, he's, Paul's just, I, there's no words to really describe what he wants to talk about. And it's right there in our story. Okay. I know, that this, I know this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. He was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words, which a man is not allowed to speak. He's talking about his own experience, and he's talking in a, in a way that probably we're not used to about he's caught in a third heaven. What, what could that possibly be talking about? But we need to jump back into the context of when this was written. They have a very different understanding of things than than we do, and it would do us well to try to understand what they might be thinking or what they might be going through. We're not going to dive into this too much, but just a, a brief overview of what uh, is being communicated here is if there is three heavens, okay, we're not going to go on a conspiracy trail, but the first heaven would be described as just us here, stuff within our atmosphere, stuff that we can see, stuff that we understand, the earth that's been uh, created. And I'm not just making this up. This is actually in the Bible. So if you were to look at the Old Testament, it's kind of throughout the Old Testament, this kind of language is, is scattered. But there's one book that has all three of these heavens talked about in some form, and that's in the book of Psalms. So let's go to Psalm uh, 104. It says, he causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. The birds of the sky live beside the springs, and they sing among the foliage. This being first, that first heaven is, is just what we can see. This, our own atmosphere, our own uh, immediate context, okay? And then the second heaven would be the next layer, which would be space. And again, I'm not making this up. If we go to Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist writes, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? The sun of man that you look after him. There's, there's these expressions that help explain what people are talking about and their understanding the first heaven being just earth and our atmosphere. And then when we talk about God and all of his wonders uh, and the stars and the planets and the constellations and all that, that would be considered the second heaven and then the third heaven being just the spiritual realm. What we normally think of when we think of heaven and God sitting on his throne and everything in that context. And we see that talked about in Psalm 33. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He alone shapes their hearts. He considers all of their works. So these are the three types of heavens, if you, if you, if you will, that, that is being talked about. So when the, the reader initially comes to this, this is not something weird. There's these different levels of heavens that people talk about and know about. And the reason why I spent so much time talking about this is in the context of what we're talking about, Paul even goes so far later in Ephesians to explain why we need to know this, why we need to understand this, why this is an important understanding in the context of all the truths that we are supposed to know and understand and apply to our lives. And later in Ephesians 6, Paul says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the world powers of darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Now, this is the exact same language that was talked about in what we're calling our, our, our purpose, our mission. It says, so this is, this is all true. All, God, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you have an inheritance, you have the spirit. So God's multifaceted wisdom may, be now, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So God is supposed to be made known to all realities through the church. Okay, so everything, everything that exists in our atmosphere, in, in space, in the outer sphere, in all of the heavens and the spiritual realms, God is supposed to be made known through his church. That puts a little more weight on us, doesn't it? See, what we do with these truths is to be observed by absolutely everything. It's not just for your family. What you believe about chapters 1, 2, and 3 shouldn't just affect your marriage and relationship, though it should affect those things. Not only. It shouldn't just affect how we are as a church. It shouldn't just affect our community. It shouldn't just affect God bless America. It doesn't even just affect our entire world if we were to show God's multifaceted wisdom to the entire world. That still doesn't cover it. It's everything. Everything that exists is supposed to know God through his church. Again, what we do with these truths, how we respond to them is observed by everything that exists. So what then is the appropriate response that we're called to? If there's such a weight to do something with what we know, what exactly are we supposed to do? Well, if we were to to go in Ephesians chapter 4 and start reading in verse 11, it says, And he gave himself, I mean, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. We're called a unity. Now, we're first called to unity after knowing and understanding the truths of chapters 1, 2, and 3. In the simplest way to say that, if you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you. This expectation is not for those that don't know Christ. Church, you need to hear that just as much as the non-believer needs to hear that. We cannot hold people that don't know God to God's standard. Whether that's in your family, in your community, in your politics, So just communicating here, our starting point is not at salvation right now. It's not knowing Jesus. Our starting point is now that you know Jesus and you understand these things that are true, this is now what we're supposed to be doing. Hmm. Isn't this fun? Woo! Now again, Paul spent the first half of his letter clarifying how Christ has unified himself with us. And then the rest of Ephesians Paul shifts into clarifying how we are to be unified with each other. Okay. Starting in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, this is where we're, we're sitting in for the next few moments. Uh, through these scriptures, it is my conviction, and not just mine alone, but I'm sharing with you right, right now, that there are a few different attributes that need to be true of the church in order to meet this goal of being unified, as we read in later in Ephesians 4. If we're all to reach unity, these four attributes have to be present. And the reason this is so important is because whether you attain these attributes or not, whether you take this seriously or not, all things that exist bear witness to what you do with those truths. Now, the good part of that would be if we ex- exhibit these things that Scripture's telling us, if we take these truths and do the right thing with them, then everything, everyone in our communities, in our families, in our world, the outer space, uh, all beings in the spiritual realms will know God. But if we don't do what we're supposed to do with these things, they will look at us and say, see, God doesn't cut it. So either way, you're having a testimony. And Right now, we have an opportunity to be reminded of what our t- testimony should be. So the at- first attribute that's talked about in, here in Ephesians 4 is humility. Now, I'd like everybody, just for my sake, just roll your eyes because I hate this one. This one is the, probably the most difficult, and there might be a reason for that. Now, let's define it real quick. I really like, there's tons of definitions. There's all the Sunday school ones, but I really appreciate this one um, by Arthur Pazia. It says, humility is the attitude of mind that enables one to see people other than oneself. Now, let's remember, again, with this context, which is not so far removed from our own, is when you think of success, when you think of doing things well, when you think about making an influence, you think of power and pride that goes with it, okay? And in this context, in the Greco-Roman era, power, everything's about power, everything's about getting more, everything's about having people under you and you being raised up. And how countercultural would it have been for Paul to come in to say, if you want to be the greatest, for Jesus to come in and say, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. The first thing is to humble yourselves. It's a good thing we're not like that anymore. No, unfortunately, this word and this concept concept continues to fade from the forefront of our own influence in our culture. And I unfortunately can't even limit that statement to just society. Humility is fading from church. It's, it's, It's fading from our everyday lives as believers. Take a look at the internet. Take a look at social media. And just in the context of Christians, okay, just think about the different posts that you've seen, or even maybe the posts that you've made online. Posts that show how awesome, how beautiful, how thoughtful, how intelligent, how health conscious, how fit, how reflective we all are. And we put it out there for the world to see for the sake of recognition and approval. Every thought, every emotion, every opinion and response just has to be shared because our pride won't allow us to stay silent. Why? Because humility, and as we'll see in a minute, meekness could possibly be interpreted as having a lack of knowledge, understanding, experience, or support. 
Even, even if you're not online or on social media, you ever walk by a conversation and you just happen to hear something that's being said and you know what that topic is? How hard is it just to keep walking by? When I walk by and someone says Superman's better than Batman, what? That the, how, the, the pride sucks you right in. When you take it into Christian circles and people... Baptist, Pentecostal, uh, Universalist, a Methodist. Where's the humility in your conversation? Even just Christians, again, talking about human rights, race issues, politics, gender identity, parenting, our comments, posts, and opinions would be significantly more beneficial to each other and the world if they were consistently clothed in truth, love, and humility. And again, we all know how important this is because of how difficult it is to obtain. Hmm. It's emphasized again, Paul does this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection in mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. So do nothing out of rivalry, conceit, or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, so be humble. Now let me ask you, have you ever come to church just to feel better about yourself? Or to lift your own spirits? I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's maybe a little selfish. Have you read scripture just to get the leg up on an argument or prove your point on something? Man, am I so guilty of this. Do we always care about the interests of others in our church? Or just the friends and the people that we normally talk to? See, it's not only on pastors, elders, deacons, or the leadership to be concerned with the interests of others. It's your job to be concerned with the interests of others. The second principle, the second attribute of our calling is gentleness. It could also be understood as meekness. I like meekness just because it sounds cooler. Uh, And I default to the meaning that I was taught um, for meekness, which is power under control, if you've ever heard that, which is common. I love that, that. That says so much. But I don't think it fully does it. Because who's regulating that power? Still, still you. So I think in terms of what we're talking about, a better working definition would be a power surrendered to his control. It's been uh, put this way that, that meekness or gentleness stems from trust in God's goodness and control over situation. See, where humility is a mindset, meekness is the restraint and the submission to God's power and authority over your own. And we can belabor that, but we'll keep going. The third uh, principle is patience. Or as Alistair Begg puts it, long-souled. And the working definition for this is 
recognizing the need to respond to others the way the Lord responds to us over and over and over again. Man. See, when we evaluate our situation or our relationship and submit our responses to reflecting the same response that God has given us, things would be different. Even even on Facebook, it applies. See, but here's the thing. So between humility and meekness and patience, they can all start to jumble up. In the, it's good that they uh, overlap, but there are distinctions that I think we should keep because they all start to just sound alike. Yes, be patient with another. Be humble. Okay, put others before. Okay, we get it. I, uh, I look to uh, Marius Victorinus, who was uh, a Roman philosopher in the, in the fourth century who was converted to Christianity by St. Jerome. And we'll talk about him in a second. And this is what he has to say on these three that are so close together. He says, lowliness or humility consists in having a humble mind, but meekness and gentleness is a curb on pride and cruelty. Patience consists in bearing an adverse circumstance that may befall them. Now with lowliness and meekness, they learn not to be afraid to suffer. And with patience, they learn how to respond if they have to suffer. Now, the suffering that we're talking about, I think we all actually know what suffering is to some extent. If you've ever successfully humbled yourself or have had the Spirit of God humble you, then you understand the degree of suffering that we're talking about. This is not to be abstract. This is to be completely applicable to you right now. If you've ever had to bite your tongue or unclench your fist or delete a comment you put on a controversial post then you know the degree of suffering that we're talking about. It it hurts to swallow your pride. Sometimes it really hurts because you're right and you only care about being right. But you love them so much that you can be right. Like, it hurts to be humble, to put others before ourselves, to be gentle and meek and to be patient. But patience here stands out as the response to the suffering of being humble and being meek. Now, the fourth attribute is this bearing with one another, forbearance. And again, the simplest term, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel, is just holding up one another. Or in the most annoyed term, just putting up with one another. And for this uh, to talk about, I go to Jerome, uh, who was another 4th century uh, believer, and we have to thank him for the Latin Vulgate, which led to the English translation of our Bible Uh, He's a hero of the faith. And he says, anyone who understands what it is to forbear one another in love will understand that this is a precept appropriate to the faithful. This is supposed to be uh, characteristic of all believers in the church. It is not indeed the saints, the mature, who have any need to forbear one another, hopefully. Rather, it is those in the earlier stages of Christian life who, being human, are still under the control of of some passions. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, what Jerome is talking about here the, in terms of those that need to drink milk and those that need to eat meat. Okay? And both people, both groups, are in our churches. Now, there are those even in our church who still need milk, who, who are young in the faith, who are still figuring this out, or still learning how to crawl, still learning how to, how to talk and be appropriate and be a Christian and for them, 
their calling would, for humility, for patience, for, for forbearance, would be to submit themselves to those that have a deeper, longer relationship with the Lord. And there are those in our church who are meat eaters, and the meat eaters are called to patiently and gently and humbly hold up, put up with, sustain those who haven't cut their teeth yet. Okay, so the younger ones in the faith are called to be humble before the older ones in the faith. And the older ones in the faith are supposed to be humble enough to bear with the younger ones in the faith. But then there's a, there is a third category. There's those that believe that they're in one category when they're really in another. There are those that think they're, they're eating meat, but they don't even have teeth yet. There are those that are drinking milk that think that they know it all. And in my opinion, these are the, these are the worst, because they're the most stubborn. And this is, but this is forbearance. This is what the church is called to in being part of the body. This is something that those truths of Christ forgiving you and raising you up and making you alive need to lead you to stuff like this. They're supposed to lead you to willingly put up with the annoying person in church. They're supposed to bring, those truths bring you to deal with those that say they'll be there, but they're not. Now, the fifth attribute that we read in in being unified as a church is love. And I'm not going to belabor this because Pastor Steve a couple weeks ago really uh, talked about this. But we can see this being fleshed out again in Ephesians. Paul writes in chapter 4, Since you put away lying, speak truth. Each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, when I grew up, I was always told that this is in context of like your family or marriage. But we're not supposed to let the sun go down when we're angry between one another. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Now, this is a phenomenal piece of truth when we don't do the things we're supposed to do. When, when uh, we see that God forgave us and he loves us and he, and he pulled us out and he was raised up so he raises up us with us. When he gives us an inheritance, when we understand we have the promised Holy Spirit sealed inside of us. If it doesn't lead us to humility, if it doesn't lead us to meekness, if it doesn't lead us to patience or forbearing with one another or loving each other, we willingly give the devil an opportunity to work on our lives. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone who is in need. No foul language is to come from your mouth or your fingers on your keyboard, but only what is good for building up someone in need. How hard is that? If you were to gauge everything that comes out of your mouth by the effectiveness it has of building other people up, how many of us would score 100? How many of us would need summer school? (laughs) I thought that was good. Anyway. (laughs) And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate 
to one another. Forgiving one another just as God also forgave you. This is what our truths about us and about Christ, how he has unified us with himself. This is what those truths are to lead to. And if they don't, and if you're unwilling to allow those truths to shape you in this way, something's not connected. I'm not going to make a judgment on what that is, but work will need to absolutely be done. Now, when we put all of these things together, those attributes of humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and love, we look different, church. When we do this here, we look different. But it's so hard, obviously. It's easier to love people outside the church than in the church. You see those bumper stickers of people saying, I love pets and hate people, or something like that. It's easier to love everybody but your family. But when we do this, and we do this right and well and appropriately and out of the foundations of the truths that are talked about in the first couple chapters, we look different. And church, I tell you, we're supposed to look different. And it's supposed to be obvious. In, in, in uh, chapter 4, um, Paul writes that you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. You and the world and your old life are supposed to be completely separated now. And our lives as part of this body were to bear a testimony of the relationship we have with Christ by being united together. See, the looking different, we're, we're not instructed to work tirelessly, to, to, to look and act and sound like our surrounding communities just enough to make those in our inner circles of influence comfortable and unaware that we even have faith. That is not what we're called to. We're called to look different and be different. And this is how we're different. Do you see this out there? Unfortunately, sometimes we see it more than in here. But we're supposed to be the forerunners for humility. We're supposed to be the first thing that when people think of these words, it's supposed to be, oh yeah, the church does that. See, if we will concern ourselves with being unified, then we will be Christ's church. Then we'll be a bride worth taking home. Amen? All of these things are important. This is not just a, oh yeah, that's nice. Christ died for you, forgave you, gave you an inheritance, empowered you by his spirit, is transforming you for the purpose of his will. And his will, when all that's true about us, the first thing we're supposed to be doing with that truth is loving our church. It's supposed to be belonging to the body. It's to be wrestling with how to be humble here. It's supposed to be practicing how to be meek and restrain your power and your thoughts and opinions and personalities here. We're supposed to grow in our patience here. This is not the last place to be patient. These are not the people you are not supposed to be patient with. These are the people you're supposed to bear with. These are the people you're supposed to come alongside and lift up, not look back and scoff and say, hey, you deserve that. 
our people, our church, is who we're supposed to love first. Because if we don't love here, but we love out there, it's empty. Because we haven't really gotten down. And this is what it means to belong to the body. Our purpose for all the things that Christ did is for everyone to see him through us in how we are united with each other. So church, let's, let's practice this. It's not going to happen right away. I'm still going to, you know, make fun of Adam on things. It's not just going to go away completely. But our first calling is to be unified here with each other before we try to unify them with Jesus. Dearly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we we first thank you for all the things that are true about us in our relationship with you. We thank you that you've forgiven us, that you've saved us, that you've come down to pull us out that as you've raised, as you've been raised from the dead, that we are raised from the dead, that we have an inheritance, that we have your promised spirit sealing us, that you, God, in the Holy Spirit, dwell within us. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you that we have been grafted into your family, not because of anything we can do, but like In the story of the Good Samaritan, we couldn't do anything, and yet you still pulled us out. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for all of the things that are true about us. But Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry that we've taken those truths and run with them wherever we wanted. Lord, I'm sorry that I've taken your truths and I put them on the shelf. Lord, I'm sorry that I've taken your truths and even twisted them for my own agenda. And Lord, we are sorry that we have neglected your church. Lord, would you begin again to unify us? Would you make us willing? Would you unify the spirit that's in all of us and transform us to be humble with one another? To be gentle and meek with one another? To to be patient with your church? Lord, transform us to bear with one another. Transform us to love each other. And Lord, would we see it here that we become a body so unified that all the authorities and all the powers in every realm in existence knows who you are because of what your truths have changed in our lives. Lord, make us your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, thank you so much for for being part of our service this morning. I hope that this continues to to resonate as the Spirit transforms us. Um, For those that are are here, we have our our equipment safe. And uh, again, it's great to see you. I hope you have a blessed Sunday and the rest of your week as you walk in the Lord. Thank you. Amen.